Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2, and let's see what our Heavenly Father has to say to us tonight. And maybe there's someone tonight that desperately needs to hear this message. I know there have been times throughout my life as I've walked with the Lord that this message is one of those ones that just helps me to remember that I matter to God. You matter to God. You're not here by accident. The Lord loves you deeply and desperately. And that he desires to have that deep relationship with you as a father does with a son, as a mother does with a son or with a daughter. That relationship that comes by being near and being close. As we start chapter 2 in the book of James tonight, I want to begin with a question. Have you ever in your walk with the Lord, and we'll confine it to that, I'm sure if we took it outside of the confines, but let's leave it where James is speaking. Have you ever in your walk with the Lord been prejudiced by maybe something that someone has said or perhaps something you've seen on social media or maybe you heard a rumor? Have you ever been prejudiced against someone so much that before you met them, you didn't like them. And I don't want a show of hands. I think we can all answer that question affirmatively. And perhaps you've allowed criticism of someone uh, to predispose you to think in your mind a certain way about a person before you've even been introduced. I've had this happen so many times in my life. I've actually stumbled upon conversations where I was the topic of the conversation. I'm standing right next to the people having the conversation. They're talking about me, and I have to walk up and say, Hi, I'm Jeff. Which is pretty shocking when the people are gossiping. That shouldn't happen in the church. The church should be a place where everyone matters, everyone counts, everyone has value. But if we're honest, I think we can all admit that there are times when we don't meet that ideal. And so one of the things that's happened in my own walk with the Lord is I have really kind of come to the conclusion That very often we believe what we want to believe, and very often that's because we have been predisposed. We've been prejudiced. We've heard something about someone, and we've passed judgment on them before we actually have an opportunity to hear their story. The book of Galatians in chapter 6, a marvelous verse for each of you to underline verse 1. If you find your brother in a fault, 
And the intent there is that when you find your brother in a fault, your brother doesn't actually want to be in that fault. There's something that's happened that has allowed them to be in that situation. And though it is their sin, you who are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest you yourselves also be tempted in the same manner. And the Apostle Paul, writing there in Galatians 6.1, uses a very unique word for restore. The Greek root word there usually is a medical term. But it is to apply one's full heart and full attention towards making that person well. And that really is what we're looking at here as we begin chapter 2. What are we doing to make the body of Christ a place where people are well? Because let's face it, not all of us think the same, not all of us act the same, not all of us have the same political views, not all of us agree on masks or no masks. We have all kinds of things going on in our lives. We have many bents, many beliefs of things that ultimately could divide the body of Christ, but what are we going to do to apply our heart's full, concerted effort to making the church a place where people are well, where they're whole? You see, because in God's economy, absolutely everybody is somebody. The person sitting next to you may be the most important person as far as God is concerned tonight. And it may flip and you might be that person tomorrow. But nobody is inconsequential in the body of Christ. Christ died to make it so. And we as the church should live to make it so. Would you pray with me? Father, we bring your word to you tonight, and we ask that you would speak to us through it. Would we hear from heaven the glorious word of the Lord? Change our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, James chapter 2, and we'll take the first 13 verses. My brethren, Do not take hold of the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord of glory with partiality. Can I tell you that God actually despises man-made distinctions? God actually is upset about inequity and injustice. Racism. God hates inequity. And we know that because he hates partiality. Things that separate or parse us out, tear us apart. We're not to hang on to our Christianity in a way that it seems as though God is partial to one group of people or a person and does not hold the same love for others. 
For if there should come among into your assembly a man with gold rings, in fine apparel, and there should also come a poor man in filthy clothes, and you will pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, Sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, You stand there, or worse yet is the implication, Sit here on this bench that is below my feet, that is used for me to put my feet on, which in an Eastern culture would be the dirtiest place in the house. You sit where I put my feet. It's an indication, actually, that one might walk on that person. That's why in Eastern cultures you never show the bottom of your shoe to anyone. It's considered the most filthy thing on your body. You would never pick up your, you know, we take our flip-flops out and play around with them. You would not find that in the Middle East. And so in this culture, as James is speaking in a Jewish context, he's saying, would you seriously look at someone who's rich and give them a good seat and give the poor person a seat where you wouldn't put your feet? The word partiality that's used here kind of gives us the bane that is in our society of personal favoritism. And you can extrapolate this thought out to include so many things that we do not have time to talk about or name all of them. But it isn't just riches which is in view here because that would have been something then that everyone could understand. They would have understood that rich people got the best seats in the synagogue. This is actually still largely true today in Judaism. As most of you know, one of our pastors, one of my dear friends, is actually Jewish. He's 100% Jewish. And we were having a conversation one day. We were talking about synagogue. He went to religious school, and he spent his Saturday Shabbat inside of the, the local assembly of the synagogue, and as he was there, you literally got placed in the pews, in the seats in the synagogue, according to the hierarchy of how much good you had done in the church, and especially for the rabbi. And so if you wanted to sit in the front row, he he told me that very often things like Cadillacs would exchange hands. So you give the rabbi a Cadillac and, oh, that'll get you right in the front. Now, I'm not saying all congregations are like that. But I know someone personally who experienced that in a Jewish congregation here in Los Angeles. And so that's kind of in view here. That principle of buying or currying favor because of your status or because of something about you that makes you different, or in many people's understanding would make you better than someone else. The basic idea is judging people on external things that do not matter. And we can certainly see how this would apply to ethnicity, to race, to social status, politics, 
things that ultimately when you get to heaven, Jesus is not going to ask you, man, did you vote Republican or Democrat? You know, how in tune were you to Fox News? Or, you know, were you watching CNN faithfully? He's not going to ask you, you know, were you culturally relevant in your own culture? Did you really promote those ideals? Now, don't get me wrong and don't get the Bible wrong. Our cultures are beautiful pieces of the fabric of the body of Christ. But they are not the main thing. The main thing is the good news of the gospel that has linked us all together as a single family in Christ. That should not be for sale. And it shouldn't be exclusive. It shouldn't keep one out. It should keep no one down. As the children of God, we should understand the value of our fellow human beings. No place should that type of good inclusivity be exemplified. No place should be better than here in God's house. This should be the place where everyone feels welcome. Everyone is loved. Everyone is cared for. Everyone has value. Why is that important? Because ultimately, we are all going to stand before God for those decisions. I'm going to let our tech team know right now that this pad just went dead, so you are now controlling the PowerPoint from back in the control room. So when I get to the next slide, I'll try and tune them in. Normally, I get to do that from right here, but somehow this didn't get charged up. There we go. See how that works? Thank you. So, if they roll back one to the previous slide, to slide three. The church is filled with favoritism. And it shouldn't be. And the reason I say this is that it places value on human beings that God scoffs at. God doesn't care if you're rich. God doesn't care if you're poor. Your determined value is not based on the color of your skin. It is exactly as Dr. King said. It's the content of your character. It's who you are in Christ. It's who you are as a person in the Lord Jesus. That's what makes you valuable. In that sense, we all have immense value, don't we? You know how we know that? The price paid for us. It was God's own son. So in that sense, we all have the same intrinsic value. We all have that equality in the grace of God. And by the way, this is a consistent theme throughout the New Testament. It really doesn't matter what book you go to. You're going to find Jesus condemning anything that puts people on edge or in in combatant mode with one another. You're going to find him uplifting those qualities and characteristics that draw us together. 
you need look no further than the Sermon on the Mount. Amen? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Do you understand what I'm saying? Those are all relational things. Those are things that draw us together. They don't push us apart. And so James is picking up on that theme. He's saying we shouldn't be a place where, where, the, where when we come in, we feel like we have to find the place we fit. The whole place should be a place where we fit. The body of Christ should be such a place where man feels welcome. That as if the Lord was standing there for himself saying, please come in, welcome to my family. You matter to God. And this very quality should be something that marks us. In that sense, notice the contrast here that Jesus is the Lord of glory and he's not the Lord of gossip and garbage. And you can kind of see that in the, in the midst of what's being said here in these first several verses. He is our glorious Lord and Christ. Interesting the word that's used there, glory. And why is it? As we turn to the next slide, the reason that this is so important for us is that the glory that's being spoken of here in these first few verses is the literal Shekinah glory of God himself. That the glory that we're supposed to exude is the glory that was the reason Moses eventually veiled his face because he was losing the glory of God. It's literally the glory of the Lord. It's what the Jewish people saw when they wandered in the wilderness with the tabernacle and they saw the pillar of fire and the cloud. It's what the high priest saw when he went into the Ark of the Covenant and there between the two cherubim dwelled the presence of the Lord. And as he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat, the countenance of God was there. That is supposed to be exuding from us as the church. We're supposed to be the visible representation now. Jesus, when he left, remember he said, I am the light of the world. But when he left, he said, now you are the light of the world. What light is that? The glory of the Lord. That's why it's so important that the church is actually a body, which we've already seen, that will be doers of the word. That we don't just hear the word of the Lord, but we're doers of the word. That the things that the Bible teaches, we actually live out. You see, I can't claim to be something and then do nothing with the something I claim to be. And so, as this passage unfolds for us, we are actually the bearers of the imprimatur, the, the signature that God is in this world. Have you ever thought about that? You may be the only Jesus people ever see. It may be you. It may be how you live your life. It may be the deeds that you undertake. It may be the words that you say. It may be the kindnesses that you extend. You may be the only glory of the Lord that somebody sees. Does God have a chance to see that you are going to show the world his glory? 
It's certainly visible in your transformed life. It's visible in your transformed speech. It's visible actually anywhere you go if you want it to be so. The problem is some people hide the glory of the Lord. And as you think on this glory, Paul writing to the church at Corinth said, the light will shine out of darkness. There in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the reason he said that is the world that we live in is filled with wickedness. It's filled with darkness. But anytime you have darkness, and if you've ever done this, uh, and it doesn't matter if you go to Carlsbad Caverns or if you just simply go in your closet and turn the lights off, if the lights are off and there's no light, there's no light, amen? But the moment you turn on any light, there's light, isn't there? And so the inference really is that for us as the body of Christ, we are supposed to be the extant glory of the Lord in this world. In other words, wherever we go, the light should go with us and go on. That's actually part of the mission of the church, isn't it? If we're the light of the world now, because Jesus is in heaven, the light is shining out of us, as Paul said, then the reason the world doesn't have light should be pretty obvious to us. It's because we don't have our light turned on. It's one of the problems that we see in our world today with the church taking up causes that have no business in the church. We're actually dimming the light of the Lord. We're turning off the light. When we get consumed with things that are not supposed to be the main mission of the church, the light gets dimmer. It doesn't get brighter. You see, I want Jesus to be my Lord, not just my Savior. And when he's the Lord, that means he rules. And when he rules, he reigns. And when he reigns, the greater extent of his glory is visible in me. When I am most like Christ, that is when I have the most light available for him to use. It's very simple. We can't miss that mission. But the gossip, the things that we engage in, the realities of living life, if Jesus is actually the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, if John 14, 6 is true, and it is, then what are we showing people to come to? If he's the way, are we showing the way? Are we showing the truth? Are we showing, what does it say, the life? In other words, are we shining a light for Christ? Because when we do that, it will draw all men unto himself. That's what happens when the light goes on. People get drawn to Jesus. But if we tamp the light down, if we dim it, if we just make this about some intellectual ascent to knowledge, if ultimately the only thing we do is give people a set of dictums or rules, then we've really progressed no further than what the Jewish people already had with the law. And the law couldn't save anybody. The light of the world saved souls. The law could never do that. And until the light came, people were still lost. Oh, they were religious. They had a form of godliness. But their sins still remained. 
We shouldn't be putting external things on the church that keep people from the light. Next, we see that it is a sad fact in verses 4 and 7 that there is prejudice going on in the church. Notice verse 4 with me. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I know none of you would do that. But I have. I've looked at situations and not judged them correctly. Matter of fact, I've been judge, jury, and executioner. Carried it all the way to what should happen. Showing partiality to things that I already care for or think I already know or things that I already believe to be true and dismissing anything that disagrees with my narrative. Be careful, church. This is very dangerous ground. Because at first it may seem subtle, but it will take up more and more of your life until you are nothing but a judgmental legalist. Thinking that you already have the answers, and so you can just impose those answers on anyone who comes your way. Become judges. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? And before anyone goes too far, this is not an outright statement that everyone needs to become poor if you want to be great in faith. But it is also true that people who are poor have very few things in the way of their faith. They get to the place of faith much faster than rich people. That's why Jesus said it is far easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what he was getting at. It's just harder. Why? Because the rich man is concerned with all kinds of other things. The power, the prestige, and heirs of the kingdom to which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. So now he's referring to this man who comes in, and there was somebody dressed in very fancy garb, and this poor person came in, and they said, well, you can sit down here where we throw our food scraps, where we stick our dirty feet. But to the rich man whose soul might be utterly filthy, they said, because of the external things that we can see, you've got some gold rings on, a nice purple robe, you get to sit on the top step where the really good people get to be. And this is just simply a way for us to understand our presuppositions and prejudices. God looks at the heart. Man often looks at the outside. God sees what you can't see, understands what you don't yet know. And so in that, God judges perfectly But very often we as humankind are actually judges who are partially blind, if not sometimes completely blind to the truth. You've dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme the noble name by which you were called in the New Testament, the book of Acts? 
Jesus was so well known to have the name above every other name, sometimes they just said it was the name. He was the name. And everybody knew what that was. And so in this context, the noble name, what name is that? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether they're on the earth or in heaven or under the earth. One day, every knee will bow to the name. And you know what? You're going to be shocked when you get to heaven. Because there are going to be people there that you thought would never get there. And there are going to be people missing that you thought for sure, oh, they're in. We're prone to judge, but we judge wrongly. And we have to be careful. Because with our judgment, with which we judge others, we ourselves, Jesus said, will also be judged. The mercy that you show other people is the mercy you will receive. The grace that you impart to others is the grace that God is going to impose upon your life. The measure, Jesus said, by which you measure others, you yourself will also be measured. James is emphasizing this very truth. And he's saying, look, this type of prejudice shouldn't be in the church. In this case, it was personal favoritism. It was having understanding of somebody by the way they were dressed that, you know, I want to make sure this guy goes to our church. He's wealthy. Let me share something with you if you don't know. I've shared it before, but I'll share it again. It's very important. I do not personally know what anyone in this church gives to the Lord. I have zero understanding. None. I don't want to know. So if you ever walk up to me and you say, well, you know that check I wrote, I will go, I have no idea what you're talking about. Now, I'm grateful that you gave that to the Lord, but you didn't give it to me. You didn't actually even give it to this church. You didn't give it to a board of trustees, even though that's who oversees it. You gave it to God. And so the reason that's important is that piece of information, like many other pieces of information, in wrong hands becomes something with which you are prejudiced towards people. You see, because guess what happens if you come to me with marriage problems and I know you gave a million dollars to the church last year? Well, I'd dump him too. That would be my propensity, wouldn't it? Humanly, I'm speaking. Your human propensity would be, well, this person is a big donor. And so we have to be careful. The reason I say this, we must be careful what information we put into our minds. Because you can't get that information out. It resides there forever. And so be very careful about what you put in to that computer that sits up in your cranium. Because when you put in, that person has a problem. 
I remember a guy in Running Springs that had been new to town, and there was a rumor spread all over town that he was a child molester. He was actually autistic. Very, very, very socially broken. And so he loved to communicate with kids because he found great conversation with children. And so there was an assumption that he was a child molester. He took his own life. It was the third time that he'd moved in about two years for the same reason. There was no evidence by anyone that he had ever touched a child. But the presupposition was there. There was a belief put into the minds of people and it infiltrated the church. And I fought with several members of our church. You can't let him come to church here. And I, I asked him, why not give me proof? Give me something. I never got that chance. Let us never be that church. Ever. Love hopes all things. Believes all things. It bears all things and love does not fail. That is the prime gift of the Spirit. Love covers a multitude of transgression. Even when we know stuff about people, you do not have to share it with everyone in the church. That can be between you and God. That can be a Galatians 6.1. You who are spiritual, seek to take that broken limb and put a cast on it. You see, for us, I think sometimes we forget that we're supposed to lead with love. Church, are you leading with love? Are you leading with love? It's real easy to lead with the law. It's very easy to lead with your personal criteria. Maybe those criteria would be Mask or no mask. Maybe they're political. They're R or D, red or blue. Are you leading with love? Because James led with love. And we're going to find out exactly how much so momentarily. Because in God's economy, all of us are loved by God. That's why God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, amen? That's what he did. He not only told us what he did, but then he did what he said he would do. I've always questioned people when they say, you know, no, it's God's holiness that's first. Really? I don't think so. God is holy, make no mistake about it. God is just, make no mistake about it. But God doesn't lead with holiness. If he had, then when Jesus came to Jerusalem, there would have been the legions of angels that he talked about. And people would have died in front of him from the expressed image of the Godhead, them being exposed to it, but he didn't do that. He came on the foal of a donkey. 
He was the humble high priest who to the point of death didn't consider it robbery to take upon himself our form. Why is that so important in the context of this passage? Because if you start with who you are, if you see you correctly, then you see other people correctly. But if you do not see you correctly, you will not see anyone else correctly. If you think you're worthy and someone else is not, then you will not see the value they have because you don't understand the lack of value that you actually bring to the table. God operates at a functional deficit to reach every last one of us. We're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved because we're good. We're saved for good works, not because we're good. And so as you think on where this is going, what James is trying to share with us, there's actually some fairly irrational behavior that's going on here. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Why do you think he would say that? Because the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. And who could know it? There's none righteous, not one. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one of us that deserves to have a right relationship with God, and yet we do. So the whole concept of being unjust, the whole concept of being a racist, the whole concept of being unfair, the whole concept of taking advantage of other people does not show that you have an understanding of you. Because God actually would have every right to take all of us out. He would be perfectly just in doing so. But because he loves us, He sent Jesus to die for us instead. And that's why the poor person, exactly as Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount, has a a special place in God's heart. Because poor people don't have the external motivation to be good. They don't have anything. They're broken. They're not trying to put on a show for anyone. There's no show to put on. And so their motivations are often much more pure. I know many of you have gone with us, and I want to encourage all of you as we get back into a full mission schedule to spend some time on the mission field. I have wept after more meals on the mission field than I care to even remember. Somebody who has nothing offering me the very best of the nothing that they have. That's a heart of gratitude. And gratitude is an attitude that believers are supposed to have. But often when we have much, we don't have that gratitude. In fact, we're not grateful for much of anything. We complain that we don't have more. And so James is actually causing us to get past the passions and prejudices that we might have and realize that 
the poor of this life have sometimes some things that we desperately need. And that is a correct understanding that we don't bring anything to the table. God loves us. God loves everyone. And he hates it when we have distinctions that drive us apart from one another. And those distinctions can be all types of things. They can be political. Those distinctions divide the body of Christ, and when they do, it's an anathema to God. What binds us together is not the Declaration of Independence, it's not the Bill of Rights, it's not the Constitution, it isn't the Supreme Court. What binds us together is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what binds the church together. That's the glue that holds the church together. Those other things are inconsequential relative to eternal things. We're just simply blessed to live where we live. We have things that other nations don't have. So I've been tracking what's going on in Afghanistan. My heart just breaks. It breaks for our soldiers that fought there and and now suffer PTSD because of it. And it breaks for the Afghan people whom for 20 years watched us roam around their country with military might and then leave them. My heart breaks. But my heart also breaks for the Chinese that have never experienced those types of freedoms. My heart breaks for the nations throughout the center of Africa, for Liberians and Nigerians, for Ugandans, for Sudanese, And God's heart breaks for them. God's people are supposed to be brokenhearted. When we understand the value of all humanity, it should drive us to do something about it. And the reason I say these things is we're in a political climate in our country where we're prone to get off track. We start getting concerned with our own personal liberties and our own personal freedoms. The freedom that we actually enjoy is the freedom that we have in Christ, knowing that one day we're going to heaven. These other earthly freedoms that we have, as wonderful as they are, as beautiful as our Constitution is, as wonderful as the laws that govern our nation are for the most part, they are far from perfect, and they are not all godly. But there is one law that governs all of us and should govern the church, and that is the royal law. That's what brings true freedom. Notice verse 8. For if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, here's how it happens. You shall love your neighbor as yourself you do well that's actually the defining factor that should be the operational motivation for every single part of the body of Christ 
You love your neighbor as yourself. And before you think your neighbor is the person that lives next door to you, the Greek word that's used here has a far different meaning. And Jesus actually addressed this when the Pharisees tried to trap him and say, who is my neighbor? Well, it's actually everyone. It's all of humanity. Because humanity is bound together in creation. We, in that sense, are related one to another. We have many different tribes and tongues and nations that we come from. But mankind is one in that sense. And so your neighbor is everyone. And it's not just talking about Christians. It's talking about unsaved people. Your neighbor is any other human being. But if you show partiality, verse 9, you commit sin. Circle it. If you don't love mankind like God loves mankind, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you are in sin. So when somebody comes to me and they they start giving me a political spiel and I say, did you love that person? They say, well, I don't have to. I say, yes, you do. The Bible says you do. And then I can look them right in the eye and say, you're in sin, dude. You're dividing the body of Christ over something that's meaningless in heaven. What are you doing? We have a higher calling than that. The Supreme Court's not the final court. The court of heaven is the final court, and everyone one day will stand before that court. So James picks up on that and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God's law actually says that if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, you're in sin and you are condemned by the law itself. He's not saying you've lost your salvation. What he is saying is you're guilty. So people that are pointing their fingers about all these meaningless things are forgetting the royal law. They're not paying attention. They're concerned just like Martha was with many things, but they forgot the one thing that was most important. Have you stopped to fall deeply in love with Jesus and thereby deeply in love with other people who also need Jesus. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble on one point, he's guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. And you see the argument that's being made here by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because these are principally the words of Jesus that are being spoken now by James, the half-brother of Jesus. In other words, don't get caught up on the minutia that you want to make your thing. Well, at least I don't commit adultery. Well, yeah, well, I don't murder. Yeah, but you're a prideful, arrogant liar. You're a bitter, mean-spirited vain person. You get, the, you get the point? You understand what Scripture says about these things? Scripture doesn't do what we do. There's no list in the Bible to where the number one sin, eh, there it is. 
oh man, you're a fornicator. I've had people come to me and literally give me, well, you know, the number one thing that's condemned the most, they went through, they got out their concordance and they looked at it. It's like, it seems like the worst sin is homosexuality. And I said, well, in, in practical sense, if you're talking about the consequences in this life about a particular sin, that's probably pretty high up there. It's probably right up there with adultery. It, it could be with greed or a handful of things that are probably going to be on the top of that list as far as situationally what's going to come into your life. But let's put it into the deeper sense which Scripture intends, which is all have sinned. And so the bitter person is just as dead in their trespasses and sins and needs to be made alive as the person who's a homosexual that's unrepentant. You understand? So what law covers all those things? The royal law. Because if I love the lost person, no matter what the reason is for their lostness, if I love the broken person, no matter what the reason is for their brokenness, if I care for people the way God cares for people, that love covers that multitude of transgression. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't put it away. doesn't say it doesn't matter. doesn't mean that they shouldn't repent. It just means that I don't put them in a box because that person is gay. I don't put them in a box because that person's been married three times. I don't put them in a box because they're constantly inebriated. I don't put them in any box because God doesn't put us in boxes. He's actually taken the lid off the box and said, all who will come to me, I will in no way cast out. The church is supposed to live the royal law of love. And that's why Jesus made it everyone's fellow man. You love every one of your neighbors as yourself. The people that you don't even like, you're supposed to love. Love your poor neighbor as yourself and your rich neighbor as yourself. Your obnoxious neighbor as yourself. Because the fact of the matter is, you're probably the obnoxious one to somebody else. You know what I'm saying? You know, we all think that we're the best thing since sliced bread until someone comes along that's better than the sliced bread, the loaf that we came out of. And then they look at us, well, what's wrong with you, dude? You see, this is the unselfish love of Christ. This is choosing to do good to our neighbor. This is a living lives of complete abandon to the love of God. You see the political hatred that we have going on in our state right now. People are literally dying. They're being murdered because they don't have a mask on or they do have a mask on. People are being murdered because they're wearing a police officer's uniform. People are being murdered because of the color of their skin. People are being murdered because they have more than someone else has. This is nuts. I can tell you what the answer is. It's love. That's what the answer actually is. And to the extent the body of Christ reaches out to love all of our neighbors... That's the gang-banging neighbors. That's the neighbors that we don't understand their culture. 
That's the neighbors who have a different skin color than us. That's the neighbors who speak a different language than we do. That's the neighbors that they happen to have the wrong color next to their ballot. When we love that way, it draws people to the God we serve. But if we just put up our walls, if we just say, well, if you're not like us, you can't get in, then we are effectively telling them that Jesus doesn't want them because we're supposed to represent the glory of the living God. We can't do that. We can't do that. There's no room in our hearts for pride. There's no room in our hearts for prejudice. There's no room in our hearts for presupposition, predetermination. There's room in our hearts to love as we have been loved. To be merciful as mercy has been shed upon us. To be gracious as we've had grace extended to us. Look, make no mistake, I don't want America to become a communist nation. The communists need Jesus. Probably very few of us in this room, I happen to be one of them, ever spent time behind the Iron Curtain. You talk about a hopeless situation because it was also godless. So I'm no fan of communism. But I shouldn't hate people because they espouse some view that I don't agree with. I should love them to Jesus. You know what happens, strangely, oddly? When you love people to Jesus, they abandon ungodly things. That's how we change the world. 20 years of us bombing the Taliban didn't change the Taliban. Did it? We spent $2 trillion over 4,000 of our best and brightest lost their lives. You see, sometimes people say, well, you know, God's a, he's an angry God. I don't think Jesus wanted his name put on any of those bombs. Do we defend the defenseless? Absolutely. Do we offer help to the hopeless? Absolutely. But the church shouldn't be a place where people get confused as to whether God loves them or not. You won't win a Taliban to Jesus by telling them America's great, down with Islam. But you might win them to Jesus by telling them Jesus loves them. Might cost you your life. But Jesus said he who's not willing to lay down his life is not worthy to be my disciple. We have to be what Jesus wants us to be. And finally, I want to leave you as we close with some principles that you can abide by, dwell in, live in. They're very simple. Not only do we get back what we give, but since Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God, 
And the only way for us to have more of his glory in us is to obey what his word says to the extent that we obey the word of God, we are brighter lights of the glory of God. The glory of God is found in obedience to the word of God. It is deepest, it is best, it is brightest when we are just like Jesus. That's why part of the Great Commission is not just go make disciples. That's the starting point. It's to teach them all things as I have taught you. In other words, live out the word. A second principle, prejudice, partiality, are sin. Why? Because they are inconsistent with the heart of God. If God is love, plain teaching of John's epistle, amen? What Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If the defining principle of God's heart is that he loves, we do a disservice by making anyone think that they are unloved. Including people who are deeply and desperately in sin. Yes, we need to confront sin. No, we can never accept sinful behavior. We must walk in righteousness. Those things are true. But how we do that matters to God. How we tell people that they need a change of heart matters to God. Because if I just point out the problem of someone trapped in sin, I have not given them the full picture. I need to tell them the solution. A third thing, being merciful in your discernment will lead you to maturity. But prejudice, partiality, and pride will lead to division. Prejudice, partiality, and pride will lead to division. But merciful discernment that leads us towards maturity in Christ will draw people to the Lord. The fourth thing, prejudice ignores the universality of sin. And every last person in this room is still a sinner. You know, Jesus, by his grace, you're a saved sinner, but you're nonetheless a sinner that's getting to heaven only because of the grace of God. Through Christ Jesus, your Lord. You see, if you ignore that you once were lost, dead in your trespasses and sins, then you don't give people the hope that you already have. So when you're prejudiced against them, when you're partial towards people who are already like you, You ignore what actually exists in your own heart, and that's fatal. It can cause you to be useless to the kingdom. And finally, and to close, one day every prejudice you have, every impartiality that you show, everything that you've ever done, you're going to have to answer for You're going to stand before the beam of seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and give an account. 
for everything. Now, it's not an entrance exam, but it is for reward or lack thereof. And I don't know about you, but I'd like to have a crown or two to put at Jesus' feet. And I certainly don't want him to have to say over and over and over again, Jeff, why did you do that? Why did you say that? You know, that person never came to me because of your word. Can you imagine standing before Jesus and having him say, you know, so-and-so really wanted to be here, but because they met you, they were turned away. Because they talked to you, they didn't think I loved them. I can tell you as a pastor, that scares me to death. It literally is the thing of nightmares for me personally. It's like, Lord, don't ever let me in any way inhibit your grace in someone else's life. Don't let me say anything. Don't let me do anything. Don't let me be anything that keeps anyone from heaven. I never want to face the gracious, nail-scarred hands of my Savior and have him say, why? Theologian John Blanchard said very wisely that which one spits towards heaven has only one place to go and it's back in your own face. I don't want to do that. I want to lift up holy hands. I want to decide that everybody is somebody I want them to know the Jesus I know. I don't want them to be hindered. I don't want to neglect, as Hebrews 13 tells us, to show hospitality to complete strangers, knowing that being unaware, we might have entertained an angel or two. There have been people in my life that I look back on it and go, God, did I miss a chance? I don't want that to be me. And I don't want it to be you. I don't want it to be us. And so, let's make sure in this church, everybody is somebody. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer? Now, some of the pastors come up front. Maybe you need prayer for something. Something going on in your life. Maybe there's an area that you just need to be rid of. Maybe you hold some prejudice. Something's in your heart. Maybe you don't like people that you need to love. And you just want to leave it and not take it home with you. Just ask God to take it. He is so good at that. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you. God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me, Lord. Thank you for healing my brokenness and taking care of my weaknesses. Lord, thank me. Thank you for adopting me, Lord. Thanks for bringing me into your family and calling me son. I needed that, God. 
And we pray that this place, your house, would be a house where everyone is welcome. Would we always deal with sin in a manner that, much like that woman caught in the act of adultery or the woman at the well, Lord, would we not be quick to judge? Would we not be those men who walked away in shame because they knew their own hearts? But would we love people into the kingdom so that you would be known? Father, thank you for your grace and thank you for your mercy. We ask all this in the mighty name of the one who loves us, our King Jesus. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.